welcome to First Fruits Podcast, made by and for Indigenous people and our allies who are ready for a new day for old ways. Greetings and a warm handshake to each one of you. My name is Kristenia Ayala. I'm a Sijahangu Lakota woman from the Rosebud Reservation in South Dakota. My name is Nigawis Opom from Sweetgrass First Nation. This program is graciously made possible by Her Many Voices Foundation, Grinding Stone Collective, and Ibex Puppetry. Good evening and a warm handshake. And oh my gosh, Nate Etsidi, it is so good to see you again. And um, I welcome you to um, the First Foods podcast. This is our second one, and I'm really excited to have you as a guest. Um, and it's good to see you. Thank you, thank you. I'm, I'm honored to be here. Uh, oh. So, um, I introduce myself? Uh -huh. Yeah. Okay, okay. Uh, so, um, I am Native City. I am a uh, um, cliff dweller born for Big Water. Um, I am Danette here in Northern Arizona. It's nice and snowy right now. And um, I'm a permaculturist with a emphasis in food sovereignty. Okay. Food. So Nate, I'm wondering, you know, tonight there's so much, um, you know, I was just introduced to the, the permaculture community about four years ago. And um, I was wondering, uh, you know, I'd like to hear some history uh, about uh, food sovereignty and um, uh, food preservation, uh, uh, history of that in Diné country. Um, how long had the Diné been into uh, agriculture? Um, so I'm, I'm really curious about those things because I'm also really interested in learning about decolonizing soil and, and then building it back up, like things like that. Mm -hmm. So I hope those are the kinds of things you're gonna cover as well, is what my hopes are. Okay, yeah. Awesome. Um, normally, um, I would do, I would have a slideshow with my presentation on, um, on Navajo food history. Unfortunately, I don't have that on my, my device right now. <laughs> But I will, um, I will try my best to remember. Um, so when it comes to foods, um, um, as in a people, we have uh, a four sacred foods, which are um, corn, beans, squash, and tobacco. So being that, um, they're foods for your body, your mind, and your soul. Um, and so, as, as a people, we, of course, um, migrated um, historically from, from the north and, um, well, from all over, really. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, the science is not up to date yet, so. <laughs> Western science, anyway. Yeah. Right. And um, so, of course, um, we were foragers, we were hunters, and later on, we became agriculturists. Um, thanks to our Pueblo um, relatives who taught us the, who, how to do dry land farming. So, um, 
However, um, so in the process, though, the re, um, we were, uh, how would you say, we had to deal with three different types of governments and monarchs. So first um, came, of course, the, um, the Spanish, then the uh, Mexican, and then the American government. And each one of these um, um, other, how would you say, powers that are, that they are, uh, tried to control us. However, it wasn't until the American government used a slash and burn technique to um, control our food systems that mm -hmm. were able to finally round us up and take us to the concentration. Because, <laughs> um, you know, food is everything. Control food. And um, we're still at this moment trying to recover from that very successful campaign. Carson and his troops like burned hundreds and hundreds of um, orchards. They stalled the ground. They poisoned water wells, and yeah. And at the moment, we're still very dependent on outside resources when it comes to food. Um, being that um, Ari not Arizona, but the Navajo Nation is a food desert. Hmm. We are the size of we are the size of Rhode Island, yet we only have fourteen. Um, supermarket or not grocery stores and uh, with like yeah with over 150,000 people dependent on 14 um, markets you know crazy and in those markets 80% of the food is considered um, junk food there mm -hmm. there is no they're like not nutrient they're not nutrient dense foods they're all super processed over processed foods foods and um it's really sad, <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, and the work we're doing is to actually um, teach people how to um, grow food. Um, so what I like to um, constant, not concentrate on, but what I like doing is teaching people how to um, grow nutrient dense greens um, that we um, would nor normally, not normally, but traditionally, those are the foods we would have had forage. Um, we would have gotten all our nutrients and minerals from um, from the land, directly from the land. However, because we don't think, thanks to colonization and the Western education, we don't forage anymore. And so in, in its stead, they're now growing things like hard, kale, you know, um, spinach, all these yeah. wonderful greens that are nutrients. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so who, who first started teaching you about this? How how long ago did you start um, learning about this practice? And when did you decide that that's something you wanted to do? Okay, so um, uh, <laughs> this is a really um, interesting story because um, I actually was um, living in Albuquerque for about a decade. Mm. And unfortunately, like a lot of um, um, indigenous people, do, I got caught up in the world of drugs and alcohol. <laughs> I became um, a, a meth addict, a, a, you know, um, and um, at one point I, I finally hit rock bottom and I decided to move home to heal myself. And it was the, it was gardening and planting and um, working with oil that actually helped to heal myself from, from drugs and alcohol. And uh, so that was um, my, uh, I guess you could say that's what really touched me about growing food. 
And and I did not know nothing about food sovereignty at the time. But um, I have my sister, Dana Elridge, she was working at the Deneg College um, Policy Institute. And she did this whole um, 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 report on food sovereignty. And she got me in, oh, she saw what I was doing. Um, oh, and, I'm sorry, let me go back a little bit. So in the process of learning to garden, I also um, found permaculture. I, I was reading this article about an herb spiral and I thought, oh, that's cute. And then I found this word permaculture, <laughs> this word permaculture. I had never seen this word before. And I decided to, to look up the word and this whole new world came, opened up. And um, before then I had been thinking in my, in my mind, like, oh my God, I want to do this. I want to use, you know, I want to use recycled materials. I want to go on and, uh, you know, do all these wonderful things. And I'm like, I thought I had to create a whole system myself. Uh -huh. And then I stumbled upon permaculture and boom, there was the system I was looking for. <laughs> oh, yay. <laughs> yeah. And um, and so um, I, did it. I, I just started downloading everything I could off the internet that had to pertain with permaculture and all their techniques and what have you. And of course, in the process, I, was, I also realized that a lot of these techniques were um, indigenous, you know, it's indigenous technology yeah. and not not just from Americas, but even indigenous European technology, you know, <laughs> which um, we don't talk about, but it's there. And um, so um, in, after a while, I just started learning more and more, experimenting with different techniques, seeing what worked, uh, a lot of rain harvesting, uh, swales, berms, you know, oh, because yeah. We, live in, yeah, we live in a desert. So to be able to harvest any amount of water is very important. And so um, I, I studied and experimented on my own for about, gosh, like five years. And then I, um, I, I met a, a group of young people who were doing a, um, like a sacred walk to all our four sacred mountains. Uh, they were called Nihigal Be'ina, um, which means um, our life is existent. Our, our sacred and sacred, it's so it, it has many meanings, but, um, in this group, um, I met um, I met a young woman who was working with um, uh, a, a not were they a non no they weren't a nonprofit but they were an organization who were trying to restore um, uh, watershed. Oh. There is Felix. <laughs> Hi, Felix. How are you? You got to unmute, Felix. He's just a talking away. There you are. Hello. 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 Here you are. Yay. Uh, Good to see you. I apologize. I'm sorry. I'm late. I, I um, had a, a little accident. I, I cut my thumb. So I was busy trying to <laughs> save your life. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah, it was weird. It, it, it was like a little cut, but I don't know. It just wouldn't stop bleeding. So. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, welcome. It's under control. So. Yeah. yeah hi there. Yate. Okay, oh, so I'm so glad you, you were able to come. So uh, uh, Nate was just telling us about his history, about how he got so involved in, in permaculture, you know? Yeah. Nate, are you gonna continue then? Yeah. Let me, let me, I, I can't remember where I left off, but so- I, off with I, I, Oh yes. That, that you yes, well, 
Yeah. So I met um, Kim, um, oh gosh, what's her last name? Kim Smith. Um, and she actually like introduced me to, um, to the organization that was doing watershed restoration. Mm-hmm. And, and then uh, along with that, I got to, um, I met um, my, ment- my old mentor, um, the late Dr. Uh, Dr. Emerson, when um, it, he lived in Hogback. And he actually has, he had developed a permaculture like homestead. So when I went to visit his place, I was just blown away by everything he had done. Rammed earth, he had irrigation systems, he had composting toilets. And I I was like, so I was walking around his property with him and pointing out like, oh my God, that's that, that's that, that's that, that's that. And he was just so, yeah, he was just so blown away by my, by my um, knowledge that he asked me like, we're going to have this youth workshop week. Would you, can you be a presenter? And I'm like, uh, hey, <laughs> I couldn't refuse. So he put me on the spot and I, and, um, and ever since then, um, it's crazy. I always say that my, my permaculture um, went backwards where I wanted to create my own demonstration site and then teach, but I ended up teaching before I created my demonstration <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So Dr. Um, Larry Emerson like projected me into the limelight and it I've been seeing and presenting ever since. And then um about what is it, five years ago we did a organic gardening course. And um, yeah. from there I'm I'm certified as an organic gardener and also in um, permaculture. So um right. you mentioned that you were in the same class with Tahara Hamdani. Yeah. Yes, yeah. I think um, we were at the um, Occidental Art and the OAAC anyway, um, uh, and we did our permaculture a PDC together, and that was amazing. Actually, Kim and her partner Makai were the ones who were who, who um, got the funding to to uh, make that PDC, and I I I really enjoyed it. I loved it. It was, um, I was taken out of my element from the desert to like the temperate forest of, you know, Northern California. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. It was, um, oh, an email. <laughs> oh, and okay. um, yeah, so um, that's, and ever since I keep, you know, permaculture is so broad that you'll never ever learn everything. So yeah, yeah. It basic. Um, I equate it to native science. It's um, all based on observation and replicating natural systems. Mm-hmm. So that's really what permaculture that's is. Yeah. <laughs> and now, Felix. So yes. how did the two of you get to? How did you two meet and become such a terrific team? Oh well, um, Nate and I have known each other since high school, since nineteen, I believe, nineteen ninety four. Uh-huh. So, um, so yeah, um, I actually, um, um, my, um, my mother, our parents and our grand grandparents actually knew each other. So, um, then this is way before we actually were formally introduced, but, um, uh, I would believe, I believe it was in 1994. That's when I actually met Nate. Um, I was, um, oh my gosh, I, I think I was a, a senior and he was, um, uh, junior. Actually, I was, you were junior. I was junior. I was a junior and then um, Nate was a freshman. So um, that's how we met in high, in, in high school, and we've been friends ever since. And um, of course, um, when I when I finished high school, I went 
you know, my way and then Nate finished and um, we kept in touch, you know, after our high school careers. And then uh, eventually, um, you know, I went off to go do some else, Nate, all our other friends went off. And then um, I think it was, but we still kept in contact. And um, about, um, I would say about 10 years ago when Nate moved back to the reservation, that is actually when, um, you know, we, we, you know, we would just see each other and hang out, do things like that. And um, at, at the time, um, Nate, I, I was working. Um, I also have a, I also um, run a, um, a clothing design company. So oh, um, yeah, I'm, I'm busy with that. And Nate was uh, enrolled at Dinette College at the time. And um, we would just talk off and on about things we wanted to do and stuff like that. And um, I noticed that Nate uh, really took to gardening. Um, and uh, so um, I, I that it was always at the back of my head for a very long time because um, back in the 70s, um, my uh, my family we were farmers and ranchers. So um, and about uh, 1985 is when um, I noticed is I think was the last time my family planted. Um, and at that time um, in the mid 80s is when um, UNM uh, University of New Mexico came into the the Gallup area. The Gallup branch was opened. And all I, all I could remember was just my parents and my aunties and everybody saying, well, I'm going back into, I'm going back to school. I enrolled at UNM and everybody went back to, to school. And uh, I noticed that uh, at that time, that's when uh, we stopped planting, we start we stopped ranching the herds and everything. They started dwindling and, um, but yeah, so um, it was always, you know, in my family, um, my grandmother, especially, um, I was raised by my grandmother. So everything um, that, um, that uh, she taught uh, instilled in, in all of us, all those grandkids when we were, when we were just children. Um, that's what I went based on. And um, when um, Nate um, started gardening and everything like that, it was always at the back of my head. I've always wanted to do it. And I remember right before my grandmother passed, um, she would always look, you know, um, where her, how her estate is. She would always look out in, in, into, the, into the east and there's a cornfield there in front of her house. And then there's three other ones that are situated behind the hill and stuff like that. But um, she would always say like, I wonder if the ground's ready or I wonder if the ground is rested. You know, she would talk like that, you know, just sitting in her house, looking out the window at the cornfields. And, and at the time, of course, I was, I was busy with other things. And uh, finally, um, we, um, one day we, she just like, you know, let's go put some seeds in the ground, see what happens. I was like, okay, let's do it. So we ended up doing that. And uh, sure enough, like uh, we did, we planted like, um, like um, 10, um, uh, corn plants and then um, they came up and they they were growing and, and she was really happy wow. I mean it was just 10 but it was really cool and um but I remember um, one day uh, because um the cornfield was uh right um beside the sheep corrals and uh -huh. the, at the time we had she had like about 60 70 um heads of sheep and um sometimes we would let them out into the large cornfield at times one day we were out for town and we we're coming back and I we were driving up from the highway toward the house and she noticed that that little patch of green was gone. So she was like, already she knew, she was like, oh, oh no, you know. And I was like, what was going on? And she was like, the corn plants are gone. And I was like, oh man. So we, we drove up to the house and sure enough, some of the, the sheep got out of the enclosure and they made their way into the cornfield and then they completely took all the plants down. Oh no. But, you know, yeah, but it was it was a really good uh, experience. Um, she was like, well, we know that the ground is rested and the ground is ready. And um, that happened and um, she ended up uh, passing in 2012. And um, um, I kind of just like 
after she passed, I just kind of just nosied off the reservation for a while here and there going to visiting cities and things like that. And then uh, finally, when I came home, um, we decided to clean her estate. Um, uh, she was, uh, and I found out that um, I was, you know, I inherited the estate. So um, two years, about, you know, almost two years after we decided to clean and as we were cleaning her, her, her estate up, um, she has this really old, old um, water pail, ceremonial water pail that she used all the time and in her kitchen cupboards. And as we were cleaning out, we discovered this calico, this cotton calico sack, and she had a bunch of seeds in there. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, so and um, we ended up taking it out. And um, as we took it out, it, it was so dilapidated that all the seeds just fell out of it. And uh, we, I separated all the seeds and everything like that and um, did germination tests on all of them. Um, there was several types, like four different types of corn there was like a, a there was like a blue like a violet it was a yellow and then there was a white and there was some other um, squash seeds in there too so I did germination tests on all of them um, none of them germinated except just a handful of the white corn they germinated so um, from that that's actually really where my journey actually restarted with um, growing and within the food sovereignty movement um, so uh, with that I. That very next spring, I made a, a little garden in my backyard, put those seeds in, all of the seeds in, and from there, um, I've been growing. I've uh, been growing it ever since. This is like the, this is going to be the fifth year now growing my grandmother's white corn. Mm -hmm. So we, we we named it Grandma Helen's white um, corn. So, <laughs> oh, okay. so now nice. now we have it, we have it available and. Uh huh. Uh, people, yeah, people are always asking me, like, if I have the white corn, like, do you have Grandma Helen's white corn? I'm like, yeah, sure. And um, I usually um, share as much as I possibly can with people. So that's where my it journey is, started. And then at the same time, you know. Very, um, I'm sorry. I was going to say it's a very drought tolerant strain. It's awesome. Oh, that's good. White yeah, corn is. is drought tolerant. Yeah, it is. Yeah. It is. It, um, oh, my goodness. It's like, um, so. Um, we're finding out because you know um we're just we're fine i'm i'm constantly learning new things about the corn so every year it's different for me like yeah you know i put the corn in the ground and i'd be like okay you know let's see what happens this year and then um it does it, it does really interesting things so i'm still learning about it it is very drought drought tolerant that we noticed that so mm -hmm. we I, I actually um i actually grow it two different ways i grow it in a garden bed and then we also do a dry dry farming method dry land farming method so and both ways works they both work both ways so um i usually try to i i try to keep the well um i'm really um uh, i'm like completely organized so i keep all of the you know the seeds that are dry land separate from the ones i do in the garden that are irrigated things uh -huh. like that so but there it's a really good strain um i'm hoping that um i think um we're going to be i'm going to be kind of um uh, taking some white corn from different regions of the reservation, especially on the western side of the, the of the Navajo Nation, uh -huh. and um, going to be cross pollinating it with uh, with my grandmother's white corn. So just to to build its, you know, just to build up its genetics. Yeah. So yeah, so that's yeah. another. Oh thing, you know. And yeah, is all that self taught? I mean, how did you learn that? And how did you? Oh, do, well, when, well, when um, did you? When did you and Nate start collaborating and doing things together? So. We started collaborating about six years ago. So Nate was growing his gardens and at his at his home, and um, at the time I wasn't 
um, planting or anything. So my plant, I actually started planting five years ago. That's when I actually put the white corn seeds. That was the very first um, seed that I grew was the white corn. And that was five years ago. And I put that in the ground and it grew from there. Um, right before that, um, Nate told me about, uh, because of Nate's gardening, I kind of, you know, I was like, oh, oh that's so cool. And I, I really wanted, you know, start doing that again at some point in my life. You know, because uh -huh. I, I would tell them stories about what we used to do back in the 70s and the 80s yeah, when we planted. You would tell some of those stories because Mary, the co the co-host for this program, her husband is from uh, Northwest Territory. He's Dene up there. Oh, OK, cool. Yeah. Uh huh. Uh huh. Awesome. Yeah. And, and, so uh, would, yeah. yeah, go ahead. Oh, um, and so I think he, he likes to hear about this history. You know, he doesn't mm -hmm. really know much about the Dene history. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I totally would be open to it. Yeah, I love sharing all the stories of, you know, with my, my, my family, especially my grandmother, because, you know, she's really the one that really influenced me. And, and because of her, I, 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 I'm a fluent speaker in Dine. So, you know, because of her, um, uh, us four older, my four older siblings and I, we, we were, we're fluent in, in the Dine language because of her. Oh, you, um, introduce, you should introduce yourself to us in your language. Oh, you know what? Yeah, thank you for reminding me. I, actually, that's how you we as an NFP people to do it. Yeah, so, but yeah, let me do that really quick. Um, hello, so, yeah, hey, everyone. Yeah, so. That's me, everyone. Hi, my name is Felix, and I'm just really quickly trans, uh, translate that is um, I introduce myself as uh, um, people know me as Felix Earl. Um, I am of the Bitterwater clan, um, which is my mother's clan. I am born for the Water's Edge clan, which is my father's clan. And then uh, my paternal grandfathers are the Black Street running into the Water clan. And then also my, oh no, maternal grandfathers, that's maternal. And then my paternal grandfathers are the black sheep clan and that's how i as a Dine, um human introduce myself to the universe mm. so yeah hello everyone yeah i should have done that in the beginning thank you for oh no that's reminding okay. me. Yeah. yeah so um yes yeah, so okay. and then um nate um so nate is uh doing all his garden work around his house and uh, I mentioned to him several times like that's what I want to do. I really want to do that at some point in my day. And at, at the time, I was working at nine to five. Really didn't have anything in any time. Doing a uh, run, you know, working nine to five and then running my design, clothing design business. So I really didn't have a time to do anything else. Eventually, at, at some point, I, I just hired. You know, I was like, I can't do this anymore. This rat race is just, you know, can't do it. So um, I ended up resigning. I, I left my job, and then um, Nate came to me and said, like, um, there. Um, offering this um, organic gardening design course and you know they're looking for people you have two days to turn all your paperwork and get the <laughs> and get the scholarship and I was just like oh my gosh are you serious so I like in two days I turned in all my paperwork and the day of um, Nate went off to do the class and that morning of when the, when uh, the classes started that morning I was still running around you know to the offices trying to get things done and um eventually um that very first day of class I, I got into class like about you know about somewhere time noon around noon and you know and that's where my that's where my um, my training start uh started 
Um, but it was really interesting though, because um, as we started the courses, um, it actually, what happened was, is like, it just brought a lot of uh, memory back and, uh, and it started to reiterate a lot of the things that, um, that I was taught as, as a child from my grandparents and my, um, and my mother and my father. So um, our um, instructor, Kim Costin, you know, as she was going along with instruction, and then all these, you know, memories would be coming back to you. I'd be like, oh, yeah, I totally remember that. You know, I, that's what we used to do. And it was really mm -hmm. cool because Kim was like, uh, Kim, Miss Kim Costin, she was like, yeah, this is really, this is, she's like, you know, I'm a white lady here from Canada. And I'm just, you know, she's like, really, what this is, is you guys been doing this for a century, for thousands of years. And I'm just here to, you know teach you guys and hopefully something comes out of this she was, I was like oh my gosh you know it was really cool so she was a really awesome person and she was just like yeah you indigenous knowledge you guys this you guys did this already she's like it's in your DNA so, yeah, yeah yeah but so that's really where where um where my journey started in the uh, in the uh, food sovereignty movement and then from there of course you know um Nate we we did the whole seven seven month course um it was so far from where we are located at, um, so we we slept like outside in tents at the at the the school and things like that he, through winter, through rain and snow. So, um, but it was it was really worth it. I, I learned so much, and um, after we were done with that, that's when um, um, we really just started meeting so many other people that were within the movement on the Nen Nation. Oh, to. And then also in Hopi too, so uh, like the, like Hopi has just been a huge, huge you know inspiration to us. Um, so uh, and um, from there, just, shout you know, out. Just, uh, yeah, go ahead. I was gonna say I mean, we had to do a shout out to Hopi Tutsqua Permaculture and oh, yeah, Lillian Hill sure. and her husband Jacobo. They're amazing, 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 amazing people. There's so so much knowledge and. We're constantly every time we meet with them or see them or go visit them or even just run into the, run into them, or, um, just knowledge. I mean, just they just like ram knowledge into us, and it's oh, they're wow. so awesome. Mm -hmm. So, um, but yeah, so and that just snowballed for us from there, and um, and it's just been nonstop. You know, just um, uh, working on, you know, working on different projects. Um, most of the time, um, it's been volunteer, um, but you know. It, there's this, I don't know, for me, I kind of developed this sense of, um, you know, people on the reservation um, talk about sovereignty and like what that means and what, what, how they, you know, how they define it. And it's different for everybody. And um, for me, I kind of, um, I, based on what I learned and um, my experiences, um, I based sovereignty, like a true sovereignty through um through uh food um i think you know food is just not something that we just put in our bodies just to nurture us you know that is a part of it but it goes a lot deeper than that you know for me um i think with food um it uh, it's a form of eh, in here in Dine, eh, is is how we um the relation really the relation that we have uh, with each other as uh, human beings as the net people human beings and then with ourselves and then with our homes and then just it just spreads out from there, just goes further out, and then mm -hmm. to the relationship to the relationship that we have with um, other races of people, other lands, 
um, the, uh, with Mother Earth and then with the sky and then the universe and just infinity. So, um, so based on that, you know, I, I feel like um, for me, like a true sovereign person or um, be a way of being yeah. is, I believe for me is through food and, 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 and not just in a physical sense. Um, but, you know, mentally, you know, consciously and everything like that. Um, so um, I think uh, food for me is, is the key where um, if we learn how to um, grow our own food and how to speak to it and how to talk to it and how to use it, um, you know, it, it, it really is going to be our pathway to gaining control of, of, um, of how we live and how we govern and how we love one another. Uh-huh doings and everything and that that's how I look at it I think you know um truth true a true sovereign being can be found through food and um and um people I always tell people that they don't understand some a lot of people don't understand like what are you talking about you know and I'm like well um I could explain to you but um it's going to take me several days <laughs> but you me, were no, right Nate <laughs> right I told you I told oh, you yeah. he's a storyteller <laughs> Yeah, I'm gonna um, Felix, Felix Plan, the Quidditchini, the Bitterwater people are known for talking and talking. Oh. <laughs> yeah, which is awesome because I I very I very direct. I get to the point, and I'm like, okay, Felix, fill in the fill in the fill in the holes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, this is why Nate said this. This is why Nate mentioned this, and this is why. Uh, Maybe right. I'll do Nick at you, and I, then I'll start uh, translating yeah. in also in Navajo too. So, and right. actually, that's actually a, a really good dynamic that we have too. Um, Nate is not as you know uh, fluent in Diné as as I am. So, um, uh, what usually I end up doing is uh, I'll translate because a lot of times when Nate and I are out there teaching, um, the uh, uh, most of the audiences that we have are a lot are older um, Diné people. So, um, and a lot of them still speak the language. So at times, um, uh, what I'll do is I'll, I'll be translating um, uh, for, the, for the elder too. And then the really awesome thing about it too is when we start doing that, Nate and I usually end up being the students because, uh -huh. you know, they, the, 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 our class, the audience, you know, our elders would start telling us what they remembered, what they used to do and explaining to us in Navajo, how to say specific types of words um, ancient words and then, then then the classroom gets turned around and then Nate and I end up being the students and uh -huh. our um, our class ends up being the teachers I think it's yeah it's important to 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 say that when when we teach we like to so this is like decolonization um, we don't like to do the whole teacher student dynamic you know like mm -hmm. authority figure and whatnot so what we do is we create discussion we like to get in circles and actually like encourage our audience to interrupt us, to ask questions, to create discussion. And that's what happens is when, when we start talking about these permaculture techniques or planting techniques, um, people, you, you'll see them spark and their memory comes back and then, and then they, have, they have to tell us these stories. And, and it's awesome because now, as they're as they're teaching us um, about their past and what they remember, we gather that information and then we give it back to the people at the next at the next uh, function. You know, so yeah. it's just yeah. Well, and, that's cool. You know, I I heard um, 
let's see, Felix said that he inherited his grandmother's uh, land. And, and do, do you have your own land as well, Nate? Uh, for myself, my family, we do have land. Um, we um, we have all, we are also a sheep uh, and goat um, people. So mm -hmm. we have horses, we have goats, we have sheep. I've got a pig. <laughs> 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 and, and chihuahuas. <laughs> oh, and chihuahuas. <laughs> yeah, and chihuahuas. Um, so we do have a homestead, and um, we're, uh, yeah, we're very, um, uh, I guess, family-oriented. Uh -huh. uh, we're, um, uh, being Diné, we're very matriarchal, so it's still all, in my family, everything's handed down to the, to the, to the women. But being, of course, I'm, I consider myself a fifth-gendered person, a feminine gay, I guess you could say. Uh -huh. um, and so it is my responsibility to take care of home, take care of my father and, you know, animals and plants. So I, I, I take my role very seriously. Uh -huh. And, um, and uh, what I try to do with my home now is to create a demonstration site because I live right next to a very busy um, highway and oh. I want people to see this happening and get inspired by it, you know. And I opened my home. I have a, a, a 32 by 16 um, hoop house and I open it to people, anyone who wants to stop by to learn, to just ask questions, to what see what's going on. What kind of a house? Uh, a hoop house. Loop house. A hoop house. Oh, yeah, hoop a greenhouse. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And so um, I, I opened my home up um, to people, anyone who wants to learn, anyone. Uh -huh. Uh -huh. And unfortunately, um, uh, not many people do stop. <laughs> well, yeah, you know, that brings yeah. me back to, to the reason why I, I asked that, because um, what, do, what do either one of you think about the new land back movement that's happening right now? Let's that, take it all back. <laughs> oh, yeah, we want it all. <laughs> we want it all. <laughs> not well, she, I, I love what people are doing out there. I love this um, this surgence of indigeneity. You know, it's just, and I think um, the world needs needs indigeneity um, at this because it is like things like permaculture, indigenous technology is what's going to save the future. So, and how about you? How about you, Felix? Um. Well. Um, with that, um, the whole movement of that, um, I think that, um, you know, it, it's, it's nothing new. Um, I think it's, you know, we, we, we as indigenous people or indigenous people all over the world, wherever they are, they are from, you know, we've, we've been, um, I think our work is just, just to remind everyone, you know, that, you know, that acknowledgement is, is key and is important. Um, especially when you go into different territories. Um, so um, I really think that, um, I eventually think that, you know, for me, um, I, I, I'd say take, let's take it all back too, but I think we've gone into an, an era, an era of where um, that probably won't work because um, we, we as human, as a human race, we've just, we just intertwined and intermingled so much that, um, that we, we, we can't, we're not able to, to do that. And, um, but I do believe that um, acknowledgement is important. 
You know, um, if you are not uh, indigenous or native to a, a, a certain area or territory or land, I yeah. truly, truly do believe you should educate yourself and mm -hmm. understand, you know, yeah. you know, the people, not just the people, you know, the plant life, the people, the animal life, all the elements in, in that area, you mm -hmm. know, learn about it and acknowledge them and understand what, what their story is and, and how you um, play into that story, into their story. Uh -huh. You know, I, I really do believe that, you know, um, so uh, like with me, I, I'm constantly reminding non-Indigenous people, you know, this is where you are, you know, you're standing on, on, on this territory, you know, um, in Diné, we, we never, in Diné, we never say um, that this land is mine um, because um, owning Mother Earth is, is a concept that, that, that we don't believe in or we don't talk about. Yeah, we're stewards, stewardess of the land. We take uh -huh. care of it. We have to protect it. Yes, that's why. And that's how we acknowledge it. You know, um, we do have to protect her and we do have to fight for her. Yeah. Um, and she does need us. Um, uh, and uh, and we we definitely definitely need her. But for me, it, that that's how I think about it. So mm -hmm. I, I'm I'm constantly you know reminding everyone, and then I have to remind myself too. You know, when I venture off and I go to a, another territory, I always make sure that um, that I know where I am, and you know, and the people around me there, or the people there, and you know, like I said, everything else too, the plants and the, the animals, everything around there, the, yeah. even the atmosphere. You know, I have to remind myself, like, okay, Felix, you are going into this area, and you need to, you need to listen to them, hear their story, and and see how I, you know, influence that and how I fit into it, and uh, and, and and you know, that's that's how I feel about it. Mm -hmm. Are mm -hmm. are either one of you familiar with a a, a lady by the name of um, Lauren De Beer? I think that's how you say no. her name, huh? Well, yeah. Okay, so I met her, oh, I don't know, years ago. I think she moved back to France by now. But she um, she was working with this elder couple. I guess they were extremely wealthy. And they just got tired of the rat race in New York City. So they moved to Arizona. And when they moved to Arizona, they said, oh, my gosh, this place is really dry. And, you know, they saw the people suffering, and it really hurt them. And I can't remember what her husband did. Anyway, they started a business where they would hire the community to come in into old riverbeds and and um, build, uh, you know, I'm not too familiar, but build swells and these little tiny dams and stuff across. Mm -hmm. And pretty soon they brought so much water back to that territory. I'll do a little more research on that and, and contact you guys. Yeah. Um, okay. I, I think um, she did she start the, or she was part of the Hopi Rangers, I believe they're called? Oh, she's a white woman? Uh, yeah, because they yeah, were white yeah. Well, that probably is. Um, but she was, um, she just loved the indigenous people, this wealthy woman. She just loved indigenous people. And she would do everything to help them, you know, bring the stuff back. And they said they could probably do it on their own. But there's, you know, different kinds of equipment that you need that probably is, you know, uh, financially out of their reach. 
And so they were so generous in, in everything that they did. I think it was called Water Rock 3 or something. I'll, I'll research that and let you guys know because you might be interested in the techniques that she used to, to, to regenerate the land because all the green started growing around again. It was really, really a wonderful story. Yeah, really. So I'll research that so you guys can maybe do talk about that. I think Mary might want to ask a question. Hi, everybody. Uh, my name is Negawis Okwam. I'm from uh, Saskatchewan. Um, my husband is uh, Dene. He's from NWT. Um, he never, he never uh, heard much about his history. I've been the one telling him stuff as I've been hearing it, and it's all been news to him. So we were definitely interested in hearing more about uh, the longest walk. Mm -hmm. If any of you guys wanted to answer that. The, uh, the longest walk. The longest Is it walk? The, Is that how? Oh, sorry. The Redondo. Yeah, the Navajo long walk is, is that yeah. what you're referring to? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just said um, that's what um, we as Diné people, um, we refer to the uh, that place, the area that in New Mexico, um, Bosco Redondo, uh, we refer to it as Huejde and Huejde um, translates into a place of suffering. Mm -hmm. So um, that's what we named it as Diné people. Uh, and yeah, it ended. Um, I can probably just um, really quickly just mention about the long walk is um, and it, it's this is where like um, this fight for true sovereignty actually begins is with Wage Day and the, um, the the events leading up to it. So um, uh, the um, the U.S. Um, government and the U.S. Army um, back in um, 1860 started to um, start a campaign to try and round up um, as many of the, um, the tribes in the Southwest area, um, mainly the Navajo, the Apache, uh, and then of course our neighboring um, um, Pueblo tribes. Um, so um, what happened was um, they attempted um, from uh, 1860 um, to, 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 to round us up, to get all the Navajos together and then to relocate them to uh, another area, um, which is further down south in the New Mexico area right now, which is the Bosco Redondo area. Um, but they they were so unsuccessful; they weren't able to do it for a couple of years. And um, what happened was um, they uh, they hired this um, this um, uh, former general or something like that. But he befriended the Navajo people. His name was um, Mr. Was it Custer? Kit Carson. Nate. Kit Carson, Kit Carson. Kit, yeah, Carson. Kit Carson. Yeah, um, they, he befriended the Navajos and he um, lived with the Navajos for a really long time. And um, the US Army actually um, ended up um, recruiting him uh, to come up with a tactic to, um, to round up all the Navajos. So um, when they did um, uh, were able to, um, to, uh, to, to convince um, Carson to do so, um, he actually was the like one of the masterminds behind of um, of uh, destroying the um, the Ned people's food systems, and by destroying it, they um, they completely decimated um, just just thousands and thousands of acres of um, of farmland 
Um, they would go in and they would burn orchards. They burned orchards. They burned fields, cornfields. They salted and contaminated um, springs and water holes, water sources. Uh, and then they eventually they came in and then they started um, slaughtering livestock. They started um, slaughtering just herds, thousands of, of, of sheep and, and, and horses and cattle. They started to do that. And, but with these tactics, they called it the slash and burn tactics. And um, basically they starved us out. Um, so when they took control of our food system, that's really how they were able to take control of the lands and take control of the net people. And in um, 1864 is when they actually um, had a successful campaign of driving most of the Navajos to um, Bosco Redondo, um, uh, New Mexico, which was about four to 500 miles. And um, they started the march there. I think it was, was it, uh, Nate, was it four installments, four marches that happened? I believe so, yeah. I believe it was like in the winter season. The first, the first roundup was done, I believe in early winter. And then it lasted all the way through the end of winter. So. Um, so the, um, the winter of um, 1864 is, oh no, no, um, 1860 is when they were able to um, drive the Navajo down there um, and they did it in four installments during that winter and the Navajos that were captured and forced on that walk did it in winter. Um, so whomever survived it ended up going down there and um, they live there in captivity with the uh, Mescalero Apache. Mm -hmm. um, there was Mescalero Apaches that were taken to that to that concentration camp too, and there they were left. Um, they were held host. They were held prisoners for four years. Um, there was also some Navajos that actually evaded capture, and a lot of these Navajos lived down in like the um, the Big Mountain area, um, Monument Valley area. Um, Canyon Dishay area, um, and these places were um, where um, they were able to hide. So, and um, my grandmother said that um, we were a part of that. Um, our clan, um, we never really um, were, we never went to Bosco Redondo. We actually evaded um, capture and we ended up being here. Um, so that's what happened. And within those four years at um, Bosco Redondo, of course, that's when um, this food rationing program started. So, and then also this is when the breakdown of this, um, the breakdown of this kinship, this, eh, we call it, we call it, eh, this um, breakdown of the relationships we had with, with ourselves, with our, with our family, with our neighbors, um, other Navajos and everything. It just, that's when it started to dwindle because it, life was so bad down there that it was everyone for themselves, you know. Um, before then, it was always that we, we always would, whatever it is that we had as Navajo people, and if another person was in need, we would offer it to them. But because of the situation that they were in, and it was so terrible down there, um, that, that began to break down. So when they took the food system away from us, that's when everything started to break down. So this system of and relationship and everything began to dwindle and started to break up. And they stayed there for four years. They said um, 9,000 um, 9, Navajos were taken down there. Um, 
at the end of four years, when the, the U.S. government decided to let us go in 1864, only 2,000 Navajos came back from Bosco Redondo. So wow. they literally, they, yeah, like more, you know, it, it was just, you know, it, when I hear those numbers, it's just baffling to me. I'm like, how, yeah, like, crazy. oh my, 9,000 yeah, people like, and only 2,000 came back. Yeah. yeah, like my husband didn't even know that uh, Navajos were Diné. Yeah. <clears throat> he didn't even know that. But yeah, yeah that's it, basically what they did to the Cree people too, is they went after the buffalo and killed off all the buffalo to get control of us. Yeah, and now, and now today it's like uh, we only have we have our diabetes rates are just through the roof, and we battle all these health problems and everything because of that. Right. Yeah, that's and actually, um, it's, I, it's also important to note that um, at Bosque Redondo is we um, we um, learn fry bread, <laughs> so. Um, yeah. <laughs> right. And so that's where I, I call fry bread prison bread. Like, oh, let's eat some prison bread. <laughs> well, it, it, and, and naming it, calling it prison bread actually creates this dialogue of food history and how, you know, and it, it may be a really, a really crappy and controversial thing to name a bread, but it creates dialogue. And people don't know that um, the suffering we endured. Um, you know, at Bosque Redondo, people were so hungry, they tried to eat crow and coyote. Mm. That's, um, if you want to learn, uh, or I highly recommend um, the Diné Policy Institute Food Sovereignty Report. It's an, it's an amazing document that documents our, our food history. And it's it's heartbreaking. It's, it's really heartbreaking. Um, but um, that's the important our work is that we're trying to revive and also introduce our people to new nutrient dense foods, you know, to alleviate or to combat the the diabetes um, and not just diabetes. It's um, when 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 people have a, a steady and secure food source, you know, it alleviates um, pressures like a like anxiety and depression and what have you. And when you have a garden, it's beautiful and that uplifts the soul as well. And um, I, uh, that's why I love this work. It's, it just enlivens our people. Mm -hmm. um, and it's a healing process. It's a, it's a healing process. And uh, our, we all need healing. We all need to be healed. And only, only our mother you know, and the father can do that for us. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. That's true. And this actually has um, what we were just talking about now with um, Bosco Redondo and the long walk is uh, this actually is a part of a huge part of our um, of our um, of our workshops and our presentations that we do, um, because um, the existing problems that we have on our nation too, you know, diabetes is just through the roof. I, I'm, I myself was diagnosed with type two diabetes several years ago. And that's one reason why I do it too, because, you know, fortunately, I'm able to keep my my diabetes under control through um through um through nutrition and things like that i could probably do a better job but um you know so 
all the existing problems that we have on the reservation is a result of something that happened so long, so, such a long time ago. And people would say that to us, you know, why are you guys still talking about things like that? You know, get over it. It happened a long time ago. I was like, no, we can't because the repercussions of what happened back then is still trailing with us now. You know, we're dealing with these issues on the reservation present day because of those things, you know, and we need, you know, we as the net people need to understand that. We need to know where these problems, you know, originated from, why they're happening to us now, and then understand them. And then we also need you people who inflicted, you know, the trauma to understand those things too, that we're still in these situations because of things that had happened, you know, long time ago, regardless of how long they haven't go. We're still, it's still trailing behind us and we're still dragging all those, all those um, traumas with us to date. So it's become a huge, um, a huge part of our presentations and our education. And it's amazing just how much, especially other Navajos, it's amazing just how much other Navajos don't know about this information. And when we talk about it there, you know, it just opens this whole new, this whole new spectrum for them. And, and just like Nate mentioned earlier, like with the story with five bread, you know, we tell them, okay, you know, we love five bread. I love it. You know, I don't eat it as much as I do, but um, it, but it has a story behind it. And although the, the story is not, is not as, you know, as fantastic or, you know, you know, however people portray for five bread now, five bread is like one of the best things to eat in the world, but this is how it began. And this is the, the story behind it. So, um, and when you, when you tell people about the history of just something as simple as five bread, then it gives them a whole new outlook on things. And they start to be a little bit more conscious and they realize things like, okay, I totally understand what, um, how, why you do the work that you do. So, um, yeah, so that's, that's the story of Bosco Redondo, the Navajo Long Walk. There's a lot more to it. This is just like a brief, you know, like a summarized thing of it. But like Nate mentioned, if you look at that, um, um, that report, um, the, Dine um, was it the Internet, the, um, the Food Policy Institute? Yeah. Institute, yeah. If you really look at that report, yeah, it, it's, 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 yeah, it's, it's really, it's, it's gut-wrenching. It's like, oh my goodness. <laughs> yeah, so. Yeah. I will send you a link to it and you can post it when you post the um, podcast as well. And my sister, Dana Elridge, um, spearheaded that, I would like to mention. Oh, <laughs> yeah, Dana's, Dana's amazing. If you ever get the chance um, to interview her on your podcast, I highly recommend. Dana, Dana. what's the last name? El Elridge. E-L-D. Uh-huh, E-L-D. Uh, e R I D G E, yeah. Oh, how do you spell E L D? E L D R I D G E, I believe. Oh yeah, L okay. Yeah. Good yeah. suggestion. Thank you. Can you so, guys still uh, see me? Yeah, yeah. It's a little dark. Yeah. The, the sunset. So. <laughs> oh. <laughs> yeah. Oh my God! Check this out. Let me show you what I we're dealing with right now. It's uh, snow. Oh, ow. Still snowing out there. Wow, <laughs> it's snowing here in Chicago too. It's oh, wow. Awesome. Yeah. You know that that the story of um, uh, destroying the, the food source for people to conquer them, 
I think it's happened to the indigenous people globally, globally. I had the I had the good fortune to go down to um, the Yucatan to the Zapatista country down there, and that was right after I think there were, oh gosh, I knew the number, maybe there were seven men that were murdered by the PRI, and they attacked their village just as it was harvest time. And they took all the food that the army needed. And this is recent history. They took all the Fumi, Fumi. They took all of the food that the army needed and what they couldn't carry, they burned. And then they rounded up the entire village and they put them in, um, uh, not, they don't call it concentration camp, I can't. Um, anyway, so when I went down there, I went down to San Cristobal, uh, and and uh, I went down there with a with an indigenous crew, and it was mostly Diné and Lakota. And uh, so we went down there, and we took food, and we took money, and we took medicines and stuff. Well, then they took us to that refugee. We we stayed in the Zapatista compound, way in the mountains, and then they took us um, over to the refugee camp, where all that whole village were impounded or imprisoned. And do you know, I mean, I couldn't help but cry because when we gave them the, the, the gifts and the necessities that we brought with us, they, they had been cooking all day and all they had was chicken. But I'll tell you what, we ate like kings and queens. They fed us chicken and rice and beans and it was so wonderful. And I thought, oh, here they are just barely able to, you know, keep a food supply going and and, and that's the graciousness and the beauty of, of indigenous people. They're very true mm -hmm. human beings, you know. They know we know how to be with each other. So yeah. it was a very, very, yes. very um, uh, sad experience. And yet, and yet there it was, the raw beauty of indigenous people and their kind hearts and generosity. Yeah. But they did that, you know, they did that to the Lakota too. And so many more. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much for sharing awesome. that. Mm -hmm. I have another quick question for uh, Felix. Um, yes. I was, uh, we, we got your names a couple days before the podcast and um, I tried to look over at Nate's profile on Facebook, but I couldn't find it. There's a few people with the same name as Nate, so I couldn't find his profile. But I did find yours and you had a, a, a post about um, the effects of the climate crisis on uh, indigenous permaculture or something to that effect. Um, can you go into a little bit more of maybe what that meant? Okay then, well, yeah. Um, so um, as, you know, as a, a grower and as a farmer, and as um, as as a as a, um, as a stewardess of, of the land, um, you you begin to notice a lot of things um, with the land. Everything from from you know your your soil type, anything from you know the the amount of wind that you have, you uh, observe. So it is observation, like Nate mentioned earlier. You know, it's all based on just observation, observation, and it's constantly changing, constantly changing every single day. Um, so I noticed within um, like within the five years that I've been doing this work that a lot of things have changed with the climate. 
um, especially in the last two years. Um, we used to get snow up here. We used to get snow up in the um, the, uh, the high desert areas of Arizona. That's where we were located. Um, we used to get snow up here like about, you know, in, in October. That's when we started getting snow. Um, and in the last three years, um, there's the the, particip- the the snowfall has been pushed back to January till now. This is probably our second major um, snowfall um, this year. Um, this is our very first snowfall this year. is in, It's in January. The first one we got was like at the end of December, and it wasn't as much as we're getting right now. Um, and so, you know, things like that, you notice those things, those patterns. And then also another pattern that we're noticing is a a, a dramatic fluctuation uh, with the temperature drop and the temperature highs, Mm -hmm. especially last year in 2020, um, we were getting like in February, March, we were getting like super highs, like in the eighties. And then a week later it would drop back down to like 30, 20 degrees. You know, um, we had a and this was really, this was really bad. Um, and we had a frost that came to our area in June, the second weekend of June, a frost came in and it took down 60% of my crops. And it wasn't just me, it was everybody. So that was like a really drastic change. Um, we've never gotten frosts as long as I know. Um, we've never got frosts in June because June is practically in summer. You know, we're, we're like growing, everything is you know, growing really, really tall and, and good and healthy by then, um, things like that. And another, and, and on top of that, um, other things that I've noticed too is like, um, is um, the ants. Um, and we as the net people down here, um, we um, we're um, we're told we're taught to be observant of animal animal activity, animal behavior, um, and um, the ants down here. Um, I have this huge ant um, pile. In back in one of my gardens in the back of the house, and um, last year they came out about probably f- like about maybe April um, when it started to get a little bit warmer. They came out, and then the temperature would keep going up and down. It kept dropping, and they came out only one time, and then they went back in, and they never came back out. Still to this day, that ant, I, I think they just deserted that 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 ant hill now. But they never came up. When I observed that, I was like, okay, something is up here. And sure enough, we started getting these really high highs and low lows all spring and all summer, summer long. Our actually our planting season in 2020 was really short. Um, and because of that, you know, a lot of people, even our Hopi um, and our our Hopi neighbors are experts at, you know, at um, dry land farming and growing corn. Um, I was talking to them and they were like, yeah, our corn only got like two feet high, you know, know, something's going on. And and mine, um, the the early crop, the first and the second successions of corn that I planted, they suffered from that. Um, They went through the frost. Some of them survived. Um, They got stunted though. And then, um, so when I, um, when I harvest my garlic this year in um, July, beginning of July, just out of curiosity, those beds were empty. What I did is I was like, you know, l- let me let me plant some corn. See, just let me just see what happens. So, I um, did a third succession of corn, the white corn, excuse me, um, and um, they took off. I mean, after that frost and then the beginning of July, they took off and 
they grew really tall. I mean, they were like seven feet tall. Um, and uh, that was a that was like a really cool experiment. I was like, you know, I I never planted that late, especially corn that late. I never planted it that late, but it ended up going all the way into November. And that third succession of corn actually had they were the tallest and they had the biggest ears of corn and uh, things like that too. So that was one thing that um, I told a lot of the um, a lot of my fellow growers, like especially the hope and the my Hopi neighbors was like, you know what, I, I did a third succession at the beginning of July, and this is what happened. And they were like, you know what, um, we, I don't know, it's probably, we might actually be, we might actually have to start planting even later, you know, in the, in the growing season, you know, things like that, you know, things are kind of shifting for us. Um, but we'll, 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 you know, those are the observations that I've made. And the, the scary thing about it is uh, we as the net people were, um, you know, 500 years ago, you know, we, 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 were, we were nomadic. So we followed the, you know, the, the herds, we followed the, the herds under migration patterns. We followed the weather, we followed, you know, just everything. Um, but the scary part of it is, is today is we were not able to do that. You know, um, we're, we're, we're stagnant now, you know, we're on a reservation, you know, if our climate, our climate is changing and we actually have to change with it. Um, you know, there might be a point to where, you know, our indigenous seeds of the Southwest, they might not be able to grow as efficiently as they used to because of the climate changing. You know, I mean, if our climate here 10 years ago is, is shifting more up, maybe up north or maybe down south, you know, those seeds that had, had that have adapted to those, um, to those, um, to those environmental, uh, those environmental changes, those environmental conditions, you know, those seeds may have to move it, you know, but how do seeds move, you know, I mean, in nature, they move on their own, but um, these seeds have been domesticated by us indigenous people. So um, we, we would have to move with it. But like I said, we can't do that because we're stuck on reservations now. Um, you know, th those are the things that, you know, I observed and, and, and think about and I actually talk to a lot of people about those things now, um, you know, like, um, our domesticated plants may have to change. We might have to bring in new crops. Those are things that um, Nate and I have been looking into, um, bringing in um, a lot more different types of seeds and vegetables and things to grow in, these, uh, in, in, in our constantly changing climate. Um, and then also um, planting, um, you know, looking into parental planting, planting year round, because we as Navajo people, we all, um, there's a there's some stigma around planting. There's only certain times in the year that we're supposed to be plant, and then the ground has to rest and things like that. Mm -hmm. So um, even though that um, we do acknowledge the ancestral teachings and everything like that, we do um, let our elders know that we understand that. But you know, we're changing. The climate is changing. I don't know if you guys know, and they do notice. And we say we have to come up with new ways of of growing food and and feeding ourselves. So yeah, so it's it's a it's a big issue. For me it is and I you know, I talk to people about it sometimes, other growers and they they notice it too. So that's the that that that's what I think uh, that's what I shared on my on my on my news feed because yeah, it, it's just more it's more than just putting seeds in the ground and growing things, you know. It's like everything you have to know about. Yeah. 
Yeah. yeah, I definitely noticed that over here too. Like our winters are not as cold and our summers are getting hotter. Mm -hmm. But um, definitely one of the other things I heard about too was um, some people were saying like climate change is also causing um, diseases and stuff to to come out more. And yeah, um, to come out right. Yeah, so that's definitely another effect. And then I was wondering about how um, coronavirus and the pandemic have. Uh, affected your guys's operations and stuff down there mm. oh my god that um wow so um so i myself um i i i'm i'm the lead of this um gardening program in my community and um when i designed so i love like social permaculture which is eh, you know it's <laughs> um um, anyway, so it's community-based, like, you know, um, communal work. Um, so I designed this amazing program and then coronavirus came in and then we had to be limited to like five people. And I'm like, this is not, this is not what I want to do. <laughs> it's supposed to be open to everyone. And it, it really, um, it was a challenge, a huge challenge because I never had to deal with such limitations. And normally everything's just open to the community. Anyone can join, anyone can learn, anyone can put seeds. And it was just, it was super challenging for me to, to have to limit myself by people to, um, to, um, to where like uh, also the, the local government, the chapter house would, would shut down because of, uh, you know, COVID outbreaks and uh, it was, it's been the most challenging season ever. Uh, and, and not only that, but I also, um, I contracted COVID and I think it was May. And um, while being sick, I, no one, I was able to take care of my gardens and a lot of, like I lost like probably 60% of food um, because I was sick. And, and, yeah. and we're all, we're constantly losing family members and um, friends and elders with every elder we lose a library of information <laughs> it is um it's devastating and um what's really sad is here uh, on 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 navajo we uh, we have our, our radio station and the um they do funeral announcements and the funeral announcements are just getting longer and longer and horrible <laughs> um, but yeah um covid is really and so, yeah, so, it, 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 go ahead. Okay, uh, are you okay? Yeah. So, um, like um, Nate mentioned earlier, it's um, we 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 talk about right as the dead people and as the the relation that we have with one another and the universe and stuff like that. So, um, we're constantly and we're the dead people. We always say we're visual learners. We have to we learn best when things are done in front of us and presented in front of us and we like to touch things hands-on you know uh, we did all of that and um, when COVID hit you know all that went out the door especially in the beginning when it when when COVID hit um, the the, um, the the Navajo territory um, because we didn't we really didn't know how this virus worked or how it was transmitted and and, and all this information so the the nomination just basically went on lockdown. Um, and um, even with Nate, when Nate got sick, um, you know, I, I couldn't 
you know, I could go over to his place and, you know, or someone else could go over to his place to pick up the slack, but we didn't, we didn't know. We were like in the dark, we were afraid to like, you know, if we, if we were in the proximity of someone who was infected, we're like, we're, you know, that's, we're going to get infected too. So we basically really didn't know what to do, you know, and so when Nate went into quarantine, you know, the rest, all of us just kind of just stayed away um, because we didn't know, we didn't know anything about this virus at the time. Um, but uh, like with um, Nate mentioned earlier, it really did affect us. Um, it took away that social aspect um, and that relation aspect that, that people have with one another and with the, um, with the, with the environment and the universe. Um, we basically went into lockdown um, everyone avoided, you know, everyone. Um, and of course, you know, because of all these mandated um, precautions from CDC and the government, and then also from our own tribal government, um, we basically just, we just, every, the, like the, the reservation of the, the, the area just came to a complete standstill. But as um, one huge factor of it was, uh, was uh, impact was our traditional ceremonies. Our ceremonies were heavily impacted by um, we were planning, Nate and I were planning a, um, a, um, planting ceremony, um, in, a in, a May, in April and May, and we hired the, you know, the, the, we, we got advice from the elders, how we're going to go about it. Um, we got funding and we had everything planned out and then COVID hit and, um, the, um, the main, um, the, the, our medicine man, uh, just advised us that it's probably not a really good idea to do it right now. So we ended up postponing that, and then of course not just th those ceremonies. The ceremonies across the the reservation were were all postponed. So nobody was in, nobody was doing any ceremonies, and um, all the only thing that we were doing was basically just prayer, um, individual prayer from home. Um, we um, I actually initiated um, with uh, with another friend of mine. We initiated a um, the nep, um, the morning of prayer. Um, and um, we went ahead with that, and it was really successful. I mean, uh, we had radio, radio. It was announced on the radio. We had people sharing it. We had other people who contributed by, you know, making flyers and, you know, getting the word out as much as we could. And um, we had a um, a day of prayer, um, a morning of dinner prayer, and um, we were explaining to people like, you know, how you would go about it because we were getting a lot of response through it. People were asking us like, how do, how do you pray in a, in a time like this? And um, we were informing people like, well, you know, you just pray, but you know, you, there in Diné, um, in Diné society, we have two forms of, 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 um, of, of being, which is the beauty way, which a lot of people hear about, we call it Hajonja. And then we also have the other, the other form, which is called the protection way. Um, and, and it's, in times like this, we were telling people that you have to kind of let the beauty way part of it, kind of just let it sit and settle. And then the protection way of life or the way we exist as the people, we have to bring that up, which is really powerful. And which is more the, the prayer structure uh, of praying and things like that in the, the protection way is a lot more harsh. Um, we call it, I guess it's kind of like an anger type of way. We call it Hishkeje, Hishkeje in Navajo. And um, we also call it a Nadja. And then um, uh, protection way. What was the, what was it, Nate? Do you remember? Nye. Uh, Nye. 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 
So that's how we were telling people, that's how you have to pray in these times. Um, and uh, it was a really good success because that that morning of we were I we instructed people that um, we need to build fires. Everyone, anyone, anyone who can able to do it, if you're able to do it, build fires, light a flame, because that's how the holy people in the universe also acknowledges us and people through our fires. That's why we're told to have fireplaces within our homes and fire burning all the time. That's how um, the holy people recognize us as um, as the net people. So we asked everyone to build a fire in the morning, right before, you know, at dusk, right before the sun rises, and to pray. And uh, that was a real success. So through social media and through, although we, we, we as the net people, we couldn't be together in ceremony physically, we could be together in ceremony through consciousness and through the help of social media and technology. And, you know, um, this is the reason why technology and things like that are, 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 are out there is, you know, we need to use these as tools and, and things like that to keep our tech going and our relationship going. So we found ways as net people to still um, practice our ceremonies uh, and practice our prayer. And, uh, but yeah, it, it really did impact us. That, like Nate said is, uh, you know, I mean, just this week, you know, I five people that I know passed to pass because of COVID. Um, yeah. So, um, and um, that's really how COVID really affected us. Is, um, and then um, I remember my grandmother, she used to talk about um, the tuberculosis outbreak that happened here. And also my grandmother was uh, alive and she was able to remember the, um, the, the flu pandemic also. And um, she would talk about that. You know, she would be like, you know, when I was a, a child, this is what we did. We were told to sit still not leave the hogans don't visit with people you know there's there's there is something going on in the world that there's a change or, or something going on in the world and you have to remain you know they would be she's like we would be, we would be told to sit still you know don't do crazy things don't be running around a muck outside sit down be in prayer be quiet behave yourselves, there's something going on in this world. This world is going through some sort of transition or some sort of change. And they were disciplined, you know, back then, you know, Navajos were, she's like, when our parents told us to buckle down, they buckled down. Um, unfortunately, you know, by the events that are happening now, you know, we as, not just as Diné people, but as humans, we're, we're failing at it. We're failing at it. You know? <laughs> We're just out there, you know, still out there, even though there's a pandemic going on. So, so there was, you know, I would tell people that with Dine teaching, there are reasons why we do what we do and we're taught what we're taught. And it does take a discipline to buckle down, to sit in your home in prayer and be there to fast and other things like that. And those are a lot of things that we don't, we don't, we can't do as Dine people. You know, I, I admit to it, I can't do it, you know. Um, I I have to kind of like be out there, you know. Um, so, but yeah, that's just how the, the pandemic was really affected us here is, you know, it really kind of just made everyone not be around each other physically. Um, but then again, at the same time, um, through like, um, through the, the, the internet and just through, 
prayer and through consciousness and things like that, we're able to actually be even probably even stronger. And that I think that's a good side of it too. So I think it's really teaching us a lot of lessons. Yeah, and and yeah, when okay, go. I'm just going on again. Okay, what did you mean? <laughs> and when uh, I I it's 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 ironic that it took a virus to show us how fragile our systems are, you know. Um, and and if one great thing is that we were able to work with, on a on an amazing project. We built uh, um, hoop houses, greenhouses, and we were able to grow food in the winter, uh, nutrient dense greens to harvest for people. And um, it was a it was a real honor and pleasure to work on this amazing project. We had never worked so hard. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so is that are you're living in one of the hoop houses, Nate? No, no, no. Oh. Um, oh. I, I actually, yeah, I have a hoop house. Um, it's a greenhouse. Um, but we 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 raised uh, food. Um, um in the cold it, oh god it's so much harder to grow food in the winter it's super super labor intensive but um we were able to create systems that will ensure that in, um we will have food in the coming but we need more we we need to create bigger yeah. systems yeah um, yeah so maybe we'll we'll be doing something about that okay yes yes i'm very excited i am too Mm -hmm. okay. uh, well, um, how how yeah. long? And we're still working on that project too. I mean, yes. Um, Which one? And unfortunately, the funding has stopped trickling in. Um, but their work, our um, our project managers and the people who headed the whole project are, are are working really hard to see if we can get extensions. Um, but like even though the even though the finances have stopped, Nate and I we're, we're still working. We're still working. Um, yeah, yeah. That's the nice thing about working with the Earth Mother, you know. Oh, Everything yeah. else come to a grinding halt. Everyone is zoning out yeah. now. Yeah. Well, that's really Can awesome. Um, just shows just shows how in resilient Indigenous people are to be able to uh, come up with all these other options to still be together and whatnot in a time like this. Um, I know in our um, in our area there some of the people are pushing towards having ceremony listed as an essential service mm -hmm. but I, 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 I don't really know how I feel about that I think that there should be different types of protocol during a pandemic um, but yeah I really like that at least there are options for some people to continue to practice their ceremony and stuff like that. But I think we are getting pretty close to our time here. Okay. Are we, Christine? Mm -hmm. Christine? Yes, yes. Uh -huh. So thank you guys so much um, for coming out. And I really enjoyed hearing all about um, everything you guys talked to. I'm going to get my husband to listen in as well. And he'll definitely learn a few things about himself. And maybe uh, we can be in contact with them. Yeah, totally. Yeah, for sure. Yeah.